Hello, Discover here to explain our cash back match. Here's how it works. We give you cash back for using your Discover card on the things you were going to buy anyway. Then we match that cash back in your first year. And that's why we call it Cashback Match. Now to recap and say cash back one more time. We match all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year automatically. Discover. Exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations apply. It used to be hard to find the exact auto parts you needed. And that meant spending a lot of time at swap meets. It's a different game now when you can order exactly what you need from eBay Motors. They have 122 million parts, so you can always find the right fitment. Spend less time searching and more time building with the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Hey everyone, this is the Almost World Podcast. Bringing to you mind-blowing interviews with guests from all over the world. So settle down, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh yeah, by the way, if you like the podcast, please support Elmo's World Podcast on Patreon. Your support is what helps the podcast improve more and more. Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. I'm with my friend Matthew. Hey man, can you introduce yourself? Hi Elmo, my name is Matthew Sabatine. I am from uh, Pennsylvania, the state of Pennsylvania in in the United States of America. Um, and I am coming to you guys. Uh, it is now 3 p.m. where I live in Pencil- in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, so have you ever heard of uh, the state of Pennsylvania? <laughs> Definitely, man. Yeah. Maybe you've heard of uh, a particular large city called... Pittsburgh. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, definitely. I watched a lot of Hollywood movies. So uh, Pittsburgh always gets a mention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've noticed that uh, I've realized that a lot of people um, in, in other countries, they tend to really recognize the name Pittsburgh. So I, I always like to mention Pit, Pit, Pittsburgh. Um, so I, I actually live not, not far from there um so oh cool all right so um what do you do bro so i am the author and editor of a blog called the common caveat um and for the common caveat i identify as a secular humanist and mm-hmm. i like to uh investigate the um supernatural claims whether they come from cults, uh, superstitions, pseudosciences, or mainstream organized religion in general. Um, I'm a skeptic, um, and I I like to investigate these things to see the extent to which they might or might not be true. Um, But privately and personally, uh, I do not see evidence for any divine beings Though I am open-minded to possibly changing my stance on that. So, therefore, if I would ever find possible evidence for divine beings and the supernatural someday, I, I would like to report on that. Okay, great. So, uh, let me ask you, man, why, why this specific uh, 
to- you know topic in your blog why not something like cars or you know self development but why why this <laughs> uh i like that question um it's an interesting one uh i i guess my best answer to that is Um, I do this because um, it relates going back to my earliest days as a child, um, being curious about being curious about the whole topic of God. Um, I was raised in a fundamentalist evangelical Christian household. My parents taught me to literally interpret the Bible. My parents taught me to believe that 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 the stories of the Bible um, are literally true. They literally they those events literally took place everything from Jesus Christ's resurrection uh, all the way back to the stories in Genesis um, God creating the earth and the universe in six days and then believing in Adam and Eve and in the Garden of Eden and believing in in the stories of Moses and leading the Israelites out of Egypt and and Noah's Ark my parents taught me to believe in all of that stuff literally so as a child Um, my parents and I went to church every Sunday, every Sunday morning. Uh, we hardly ever missed. Um, we were pretty consistent and, um, you know, I, I was taught a lot about, um, a literal hell, uh, or, uh, a, uh, a literal eternal damnation where people go to suffer for their sins. And I was taught to believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord, Master, and Savior, who I have to accept in order to avoid eternal damnation. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I was I was a fundamentalist until I was about 20 years of age. And then at the age of 20, I started really doubting. Um, I, I went to I went to college, I discovered my fascination for psychology and sociology. And those two studies, um, along with philosophy, too, Uh, really influenced me to be skeptical about um, just a lot of things that I hear and see from people um, and religion in general, especially evangelical fundamentalist Christianity. That was one of the first things that I, that I really, really started doubting because, you know, I, I've never seen, I've never in my life have I ever seen anything supernatural or paranormal or anything that signals there being a world beyond our natural physical world. So I really, you know, I, I grew up in the kind of church that, that taught about prophecies, believing in prophecies, believing in, in miraculous healing, um, people putting their hands on you, praying for you and, and, and you experiencing healing and right, right, bef- right before people's eyes. Um, I was taught to believe in stuff like that, um, but because I have never seen it, uh, I was really uh, meant to, I was forced to realize that, you know, this stuff is probably not real. It's probably not true. Um, but however, to this day, you know, I still hear stories from people um, who claim that they have seen miracles, they have experienced miracles, they have been healed from uh, uh, lethal, fatal diseases, uh, cancer, um, you know, things that that really uh, contradicted the doctor's prognoses. Um, And these people 
have experienced what a lot of people would call a miracle. So, I mean, for all I know, maybe miracles are happening out there and I'm just not seeing them. Um, but, but who really knows? Um, but on, a, on an academic level, I have found a lot of these claims of miracles in the supernatural to be, to be debunked or better explained uh, through science and, and, and naturalism. And so that's why um, these are a lot of my primary motivations for, for seeking out this topic. And, and I don't know if you want me to continue on. Uh, I don't know if I, if I answered your question adequately, but. Mm -hmm. Okay. But what is the end goal here for your blog? And uh, I, I can see where you're coming from here, right? You grew up, this is your, um, your background. And so is it merely to educate or is this, do you have like a mission statement on your uh, blog? Well, if you visit my blog called The Common Caveat, and first of all, um, I, I, I forgot to mention that I would like you to promote some things about me. That is, uh, first of all, my, my blog called thecommoncaveat.com. You can also find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and you can find me on Instagram. Just, uh, just search for... Uh, you can search for at the common caveat on Instagram. You can search for my name, Matthew Sabatine on LinkedIn. You can find the common caveat page and my, my personal Matthew Sabatine page on Facebook. And then you can also search for um, the common caveat on Twitter. Um, so, <clears throat> so your question, you, you asked like, what is the purpose of, of my blog? Right? Yeah. Okay, so I have, I, I think I have three different approaches here um, that sum up my mission. My mission is education, primarily. Um, for for um, believers and non-believers, atheists and Christians, or theists in general, but I have I have three different approaches when when I have three different approaches to this topic. Number one. I am seeking to do counter apologetics um, and I'm seeking to persuade people against theism or at least persuade people against any kind of theism that is intellectually, emotionally and politically oppressive or any kind of theism that flagrantly or openly lacks serious evidence. So that that is approach number one. Uh, approach number two so I am seeking to, to also understand the neural, cognitive, biological, historical, and evolutionary basis of religion and religious people. Um, so, you know, some things that become relevant here are uh, why do religious people think and behave as they do? What goals do they have in mind? How are they trying to influence and change society? things of that sort. So this approach is, is less of a counter-apologetics approach, and it seeks to merely understand religious cognition and behaviors rather than trying to persuade people to change. Um, so, you know, people who, people who are theists, people who are Christians, who want to uh, stay in their belief, um, they might benefit from, from that part uh, of the education that I'm, that I'm trying to offer. Um, they might not be as interested in the counter apologetics 
Um, if they can't, if they don't want anything from the counter apologetics, they can, they can maybe benefit from my uh, approach number two. Then there is approach number three, wherein I am trying to be on the lookout for any possible evidence for the divine, for the supernatural, the spiritual, or whatever other worldliness that humans are begging and pleading to partake in. Um, so this, this approach is purely neutral. Um, I try to be very unbiased here, even though I fully acknowledge that I will always be biased in some way uh, just by being human. But um, with this third approach, I, I am trying to be unbiased. The first one that you mentioned is that um, you are sort of, I, I wouldn't say targeting, but more of focusing on the, I guess, anti-intellectual sort of theism. Right. Why do you think this is uh, a danger or why do you think this is a problem? Uh, well, first of all, I really appreciate that question. That is such an honest that's such an awesome question. Um, so anti-intellectualism, I do believe it is a danger because um, it really shields people from being able to fulfill to fulfill a basic need in life. And that is the basic need for understanding and clarity about what is happening around them um, and the information that they're receiving from their environment and from their peers. Um, humans really cannot escape being curious. And if we ever try to force each other to, if we ever try to prevent curiosity or stifle curiosity in people, it, it only ends up having a, a bad subsequent or later effect. Um, and I think, I think that is best exemplified in, in, Christianity and religion, when we see people who, um, you know, as children, you know, they're, they're told not to question things, they're told to just follow and believe. Um, when they, when they, when they, when they use that mentality throughout their mm -hmm. adolescence and, and, and grow and upbringing, they end up, they end up um, resenting it when they get old, like in their 20s. Um, and, you know, they'll end up turning away from from the Christian faith. And um, so even though even though I like to see some people turn away from the Christian faith, sometimes what I don't like to see is is the resentfulness that that results from people's um, in, experiences in, in anti intellectual religion. Um, so so if I if I just have to, if you would ask me to make a distinction here, um, uh, you know I'm glad you brought that up because because I am especially against the anti-intellectual kind of religion and Christianity. Um, I do think that is a huge enemy. It's it's a it's a it's much less of an enemy than say the other types of Christianity and religions that that are very intellectual. Um, and they are very academic, mm -hmm. so I do mm -hmm. have to have I do have to have an appreciation for them. Mm -hmm. All right. So I, I, it seems to me that secular humanism is, you know, its uh, overall goal is the uh, maximum well-being of each individual in a collective society, right? Where you know everyone is happy uh, optimally, right? So um, if I can and I can you know see and I can also vouch that there are so many people uh, in these types of uh, religions or belief systems or faith who in in in, uh, in the way you define it that as an anti-intellectual right where they're actually better off 
you know, they, they live happier lives. They have stronger family ties. They uh, work harder and, and have develop integrity. You know, they overcome their struggles, maybe uh, with uh, vices and everything. So um, if, if it is the case that, that their faith actually benefits them in, in the, in the, in, from, from a secular humanist perspective, why, why, why uh, you know, um, bar it or hinder it? Um, so, okay, so let me, let me try to repeat back to you what I think you're saying. Secular mm-hmm. people benefit from being secular. No, no uh, um, I, I mean the, uh, the, like, let's say the, the an anti-intellectualist Christian. Right. Okay. If his anti-intellectual faith actually benefits him, but in, in the standard that secular humanists set, which is that their overall life and well-being is actually better when they're be in their faith rather than not having the faith, right? So, um, why why would you hinder that? Well, um, I'm still kind of having a, a bit of difficulty understanding what you're saying, and I think that might be because. Um, I think that there is no benefit at all to anti-intellectualism, mm-hmm. aside from the fact that maybe anti-intellectualism can shield somebody from engaging with uh, content, academic content that is troublesome for them. You know, there are a lot of anti-intellectuals out there, maybe because they they feel most comfortable in, in that position, and they're too they're too scared to encounter anything that really makes them think and to make them think critically and break down um you know their cognitive walls that Mm -hmm. that that uh in which would allow them to you know make make new cognitive schemas to to understand the world in in a different way because let's face it um when we face counter counter information it's very uncomfortable. We experience cognitive dissonance um, when we're trying to hold two different contradictory views at once. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, it, you know, it becomes, it becomes, you know, stressful to figure out how to, how to reconcile things that we're seeing in the world. So mm-hmm. you know, maybe on that front, there are people who, you know, they just, they just feel better, more comfortable distancing themselves from intellectualism um, and I, I think that's understandable. However, at the same time, um, I think that that will eventually backfire when when they're when they eventually face situations wherein they have to they have to use some kind of education. They have to make some kind of educated decision, mm-hmm. and the situation becomes it becomes increasingly stressful for them because and, they mm-hmm. don't already have the education that they need to face down whatever you know. Um, obstacles in their way. I think there are a huge number of you know of uh, of, pe- of prof- university professors, um, lawyers, doctors, you know, people in in who are very educated who are also in an, in a in a belief system that you would define as anti-intellectualist, right? And um, you know, if it's you know if they they arrived in in that faith by 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 their own free will right and uh they in that um by their own uh discovery and curiosity uh for the truth it, that's where the, it took them right and mm-hmm. 
so do you have any data that shows that this is actually the case that that um that their faith you know that is that re requires more than just uh, i guess more from them you know in the academic sense uh do, do you have data that shows that it actually hinders or or uh, shows that their life is is worse off being faithful to to their religion okay so i i think what's going on here is you and i might have two different understandings of uh of anti-intellectualism so mm -hmm. Could, mm -hmm. you, could you give me your understanding of anti-intellectualism? Well, I would say more of like a fideistic uh, belief system, right? Where it, it their faith rises above of logic or 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 you know a, a specific, very specific and detailed rationality, right? That, that, oh, yeah. okay. So you used a very key term there, fideistic, which yeah. is which is the whole that that's the whole act or, or idea of making faith superior yeah. to logic and reason um you know what i mean I, I can see i i don't i don't i don't i really don't have data on those particular people mm -hmm. um basically at this point all i can really do is imagine how they might feel mm -hmm. so college professors educators whether they be law professors mm -hmm you know, or whoever in academia, if they are fideistic people, of course, I think we have to admit that they would be, they would only be the kind of people who are in religious universities, right? Do we ever find fideistic people? In uh, yeah, I believe so. There are a lot in uh, secular, in, in, you know, just public universities, private. There are a lot of believers in, in who, are, who are in the, you know, these staffs. I would say. Would you go as far as to say that, like, on like ninety nine percent of university professors are atheists? No, not ninety nine percent. Yeah, or as much, I, right? Or about that? I mean, I think that there are a lot of college professors, lawyers, doctors. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of people in in um, lofty professions and universities there are a lot of people in those places that have they have faith mm -hmm. they believe in a god they believe in some kind of supernatural principle um for them you know i i often don't find a lot of those people to be fideistic i find mm -hmm. them to be actually less dogmatic to be i actually find them to be pretty to be pretty intellectual mm -hmm. um they find they they find good ways to harmonize their faith with with their intellect and and their their scientific research and their academia which you know i i'm not as opposed to that as i am opposed to um just people in religion or in churches who just 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 believe in dogma just for the sake of believing in dogma and they never they never seek um, they never question hmm. it. They never find any kind of data or. But or that's facts. the thing, right? Um, you know, if, if uh, academic professors or you know lawyers or people in very uh, who or who require very uh, high education, you know, in their jobs, 
you know, they, this is guaranteed that they, they at least, you know, look into stuff before they, they actually believe the claims, right? If they can have fideistic, fideistic beliefs, why can't the people from, you know, who aren't focused on these areas? Like I said, I, I just I think I think that fideism is is really hard to hold to if you are actively seeking uh, information that could possibly expose you to to ideas that that contradict what you already believe. Um, yeah, cognitive again, maybe, dissonance. You mean? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Cognitive dissonance is something that I think a lot of fideists really try to. Mm-hmm. avoid would Dogmatism. you say that your own world you know secular humanist worldview is not cognitive dissonance i experience cognitive dissonance on a regular basis i mm-hmm. actually i actually seek to expose myself to it because i, I i'm trying to test my beliefs mm-hmm. um and i'm actually when i'm arguing against religious claims and spiritual claims i try to really make sure that i'm that i'm framing it properly that i'm not Mm-hmm. mischaracterizing it or straw manning straw manning it so mm-hmm. um and and you, and you know i i mean there are a lot of atheists out there who who are um who are wrong in their counterclaims against religion so i try i try to be mindful of of those pitfalls so i mean cognitive dissonance is always uncomfortable um it, it always messes with your head but if you get used to um if you learn how to to if you get very skilled at, mm-hmm. at, at um, reconciling things, mm-hmm. finding so. reconciliations for information that appears contradictory, then you can mm-hmm. maybe get you can maybe get more comfortable with being uncomfortable mm-hmm. in the cognitive dissonance. Okay, um, so would you say that a secular humanist's worldview is less cognitively dissonant than a fideistic? christians or 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 a you know believer well that's an interesting question um i i I can't say for sure um i because i can't say i i can't be too certain about how all secular humanists feel about that Uh, How, how about yours specifically just yours because you know you do write a blog Right, that criticizes yeah. and uh, exposes the 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 lack of intellectualism in in these believers' worldviews. Right, so um, you know, um, just comparing, juxtaposing your worldview to theirs, like, would you say yours is less cognitively dissonant? Um, I'm not sure if it is less cognitively dissonant. I just feel like it's more coherent. Coherence. So I, I, what's yeah. the difference between a coherent worldview and a, a non-cognitive, well, if, cognitive, dissonant worldview? If, if the worldview is is coherent, that means it it is logically and internally consistent with itself. However, mm. you can always you can always throw a wrench in there to make yourself question it, which. I mean, okay. I guess... I, I'm 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 confused with. Uh, I, I, it seems to me though that um, I guess uh, co- coherence is parallel to cognitive. Uh, I guess being not cognitive, to ha- not having cognitive dissonance, right? Like by how I would define cognitive dissonance is that um, you know your you you have beliefs and claims that do not contradict each other, which mean directly means that they are coherent. You know, they correspond to everything that you would 
to your the evidence that you, that's in front of you. Um, okay, so maybe maybe we should get like a clearer definition on cognitive exactly. dissonance. Yeah, it is cognitive dissonance is the perception of contradictory information. So it is not it is not exactly the contradictory information itself. But the perception. Uh, What's that? The perception, right? It's about perception. Relevant items of information include a person's actions, feelings, ideas, beliefs, and values and things in the environment. Mm. Uh, Cognitive dissonance is typically experienced as psychological stress when they participate in an action that goes against one or more of them. So, for instance, I will experience cognitive dissonance if I were to maybe, say, hit somebody while I don't believe in violence. Yeah, more of like having double standards. Yeah, it's, it, I would say it's, it's similar to that. Yeah. Coherence, coherence is very related to this, but it kind of, it would be, it's, it's relative to cognitive dissonance in the sense that it is opposite of being, well, kind mm, of opposite. Yeah, it's opposite, being, yeah. Well, co- being coherent means being internally and-, and Having no internal contradictions. Yes, having no contradictions in your logic. So would you say- that the secular humanist's worldview is more coherent, you know, or less cognitively dissonant than a fideistic believer. I think secular humanism is more coherent and and, uh, less cognitively dissonant. Well, no, I, I, okay, so I gotta be careful how I say this. I think secular humanism is more coherent, but the cognitive, but we can't say that secular humanism itself is cognitively dissonant because the cognitive dissonance is experienced by the perceiver. So you can perceive secular humanism in, in such a way that makes you feel cognitively dissonant without making secular humanism itself cognitively dissonant. So you can, the, co- the, the coherence or incoherence that you may find mm-hmm. in secular humanism is gonna be up to you. And the same, the mm. same rule really applies to religion, yeah. religion and fighting. I, I would say, uh, to be more specific, then, like, um, I would say, uh, what I rephrase the question, right? Do you think that uh, uh, your version, right, your perception of a secular humanist's worldview is less co- is is more coherent and less cognitively dissonant than a fideistic believer? I, I do feel that way. Yes. Okay. Um, All right. Only because only because I can't I cannot possibly consider myself a fideist in any way because I I don't agree with the definition of faith. Um, so, I don't agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't agree with dogmas in in religion. Um, so. But you know what? My, my feelings and my understandings and my perceptions of secular humanism, they, they fluctuate on, on, a, on a regular basis based on incoming information and okay. my encounters so with other people. It's con- so, constantly adapting and changing as you grow and learn more, right? Right. I, I really think that secular humanism is, is about that. Secular humanism is about allowing the freedom and liberty to, to change and to adapt to... Mm-hmm. To, to things to, okay. to people. So um it, that means you know that means to say that your secular humanist worldview right now could be wrong once you intake new information. You and you were willing to accept that it pro- it might be actually not the truth. Yeah, I, I could be wrong. Like okay. I said earlier, like I said earlier, I I am open minded to the possibility of of a supernatural divine realm. So you're agnostic. Uh, about uh, it. Well, I have to say that I am an atheist because but ag- I don't an agnostic believe- atheist. Right? I, I, well, 
I mean, I I really can't I really can't nail down that label. It's hard to really lay down that. Well, okay, like let me define it for you then. Like an agnostic atheist in term is agnosticism part is in terms of the of knowledge, right? You don't yeah. know that there if if there is or there isn't a supernatural world out there, but you don't believe that there is a god out there. So that's the I atheist part. I, I, I don't I don't believe that's right. I mm. also don't know if there is or isn't exactly. So that is actually uh, an agnostic atheist, right? And uh, okay. that's that's cool. But I always I, I always find myself saying that I don't believe because I don't see evidence. So well, I guess I should say it's it's better it's better to say that I lack because I don't see evidence for the supernatural. Um, but I think I think it is I think it is fair and is and it is safe for me to say that that. That I should be open-minded to the possibility of the supernatural and the divine realm, um, Interesting. because because it's quite possible that there is a world outside of my perception that is happening, mm -hmm. independent of me. I mean, for all I know, people out there really could be having near-death experiences and mm -hmm. miracles, and and God could be speaking to them. But I I just don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, you're a it's, skeptic, right? Yes, I, I'm a, I'm a skeptic to to the to the most intense degree. Um, I, I'm trying to employ the the. Do you the apply the form. same skepticism to secular humanism? Well, uh, I I apply that same skepticism to particular sec secular humanists when. when How about your it? version of it? Like, do you apply it to your own worldview? that skepticism yeah, I, I do i do okay. I, I try to examine my own claims and my my mm -hmm. own assumptions i try to back up everything i say with data mm -hmm. um it's just unfortunate that i that i have i have limitations in my perceptions mm -hmm. they have to be constantly updated limitations updated. um yeah like you're just you're only human right i'm only human right and so we don't know everything we're not omniscient but you know you're right. welcome to uh uh receive new information actually change your worldview because you actually might be wrong and you're and that's okay the problem is i i at this point i really don't know what what would um uproot my secular humanism and and really make me make me believe in supernaturalism mm -hmm. like i mm -hmm. mean i guess you know but you would consider supernaturalism you just won't believe it yet because you'd have no evidence for it is that's that, right that's okay. right I, I mean and the more the more i find myself digging into uh science the more i realize that i mean i, I the more i feel like I, i'm getting entrenched in naturalism and secular humanism mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so if you don't mind i actually want to get into um what particular sciences i, I use as inspiration sure and insight for, definitely for for judging claims and evidence so i i i, I have four main sources of inspiration and insight and they are general human biology neuroscience Cognitive science and psychology. Um, that aside, putting that excuse me, putting that aside, I also like to use a little bit of chemistry, history, theology, and philosophy wherever they may be relevant. Um, but the four that I mentioned are are my main ones. Interesting. Um, so, go for and it. Then, yeah. yeah, and if you wouldn't mind, um, I, I would like to discuss what I think are the five main themes in life that I think are the undercurrent of our behaviors and thoughts and lifestyles and choices and language and culture um, mm -hmm. today. Okay. Um, now, now I, I have no way to exactly prove that this is the case. 
I don't have any exact scientific data about this. So everything that I'm about to say, uh, a lot of it has just been based on uh, years of discussing religion with strangers and, and close friends online, uh, reading the Bible, reading yeah. theology, uh, reading the theory of about the theory of evolution. It's, uh, it's your independent uh, research. Independent re research, yes, which has been uh, um, punctuated also by witnessing momentous, pivotal, mm. destructive political events unfold in the past decade or two because of religion. So mm -hmm. if you recall, you know, back in on September 11th of, of 2001, um, our our nation faced a crisis, um, a, a huge, you know, planes hit our Twin Towers um, in Washington, D.C., um, a lot of people witnessed this event on, on television, live yeah. on television, as well as people who were below the buildings. Um, you know, a, a lot of people died that day. Um, and historians have noted that, that this catastrophic event um, has, has traumatized a lot of people and has changed a, a lot of people's lives, um, especially those who were close to the accident, those who lost their loved ones. Um, it really shook the whole nation um and and that's primarily why we got the new atheist movement with sam harris and richard dawkins and daniel dennett and and christopher hitchens um okay and so uh they they really um got people thinking harder that about religion um being not only not only untrue but also dangerous and I think I think in the past 20 years, they have left such a mark on our culture uh, of all generations. Um, and I, as the common caveat, I, I want to figure out where we're going with this, because I think at this point now, even though even though we are very, very opposed to extremism and fundamentalism, you know, well, my country is I feel like we're becoming less fundamentalist less extremist, even though there are a lot of parts in the world where extremism and fundamentalism is still on the rise, we're trying to figure out how to respond to this. And I would, I would like to be involved with, you know, adding responses to that. Um, and I, I, so I think that these five, these five main themes, they have a relationship with extremism and fundamentalism and life in general, language, choices, culture, Theme number one is unexplained experiences. Some people claim to hear, see, or feel a paranormal or supernatural event. Um, whether it is negative, positive, or miraculous, the event usually changes the person's life for better or for worse. Um, some of my favorite examples are claims about ghosts, demons, or any kind of visitation from otherworldly beings. Um, Near-death experiences are a pretty hot topic right now. Mystical experiences are another hot topic right now, too. And, you know, mystical experiences are, I think they are, they are pretty relevant to the onset of fundamentalism and extremism in somebody's life, um, especially in primitive cultures, you know. But uh, today we still got a little bit of primitiveness going on in, in people's lives. You know, they've, they're facing poverty. They're, they're facing... Uh, uh, political catastrophes, um, you know, and sometimes they become violent. Uh, you know, some sometimes people who were uh, sane at one time, they become insane because of a particular catastrophic event that happens to them and they need an escape 
from from the from the mainstream world, and that's when fundamentalism and extremism steps in for them and offers them certainty. So um, that's one example. Uh, so while other unexplained events may not be paranormal or supernatural, they can be catastrophic, life-changing, psychological, financial, or health-related in a way that changes how somebody sees himself or herself, the world, and other people, their future, and their past. What amazes me is how spiritual interpretations often get uh, suffused or mixed with these unexplained experiences or events. So my it takes a lot of ingredients to fix or build a car, like cooking, but without the frozen dinner easy way out. eBay Motors has 122 million parts. It's always the right fitment, so you can follow any recipe to a T. Whether it's a vintage Italian coupe that's classic like grandma's meatballs or a German luxury car that's as complicated as Oma's Rouladen. To cook up something great in the garage, use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Holidays are here, and so is fashionable fitness. Gift yourself a Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 3 5G, a phone that folds in half to literally stand on its own. Pair it with the Galaxy Watch 4 for ultimate wellness and wow factor. Check health stats, flex personal records. Over 90 activities can be tracked, like biking, swimming, golfing, and more. Invest in yourself with tech made to crush goals. Holidays open up with Galaxy. Shop it all at Samsung.com. 5G connection and availability may vary. Check with Carrier. Products sold separately. My goal in this in, in this is to offer naturalistic explanations as an alternative to the temptation to always assume a supernatural explanation. So if you, ha if you don't have any more questions, I can move on to the other themes. Um, yeah, let's say um, I accepted Lord Jesus Christ as my savior, you know, and um, I, I and uh, would you call that a supernatural experience? Uh, I would call that a a mental event, a biological event. So something happened within your body and brain that mm -hmm. was very unique and mysterious um and enlivening and life-changing to you mm -hmm. but if you they claim that the nature of them accepting the lord jesus christ and you know changing them you know saving their soul you know and being born again isn't that supernatural experience would you put it in that same category as ghosts and demons uh no that's that's of a different nature because i have been i have been um in the presence of of a lot of people in my past who you know supposedly accept uh christ as their lord master and savior they said a prayer uh they did penance uh they prayed the rosary uh you know yeah. they engaged in some kind of ritual that that made them feel different than before i would not put that on the same level as ghosts and demons because you know making claims about ghosts and demons that's of uh but uh, making claims like, of like the of the holy spirit changing your life right and actually working in you and, and you know and speaking to you in in, his, in god's own way that's very supernatural well i would call that again i would call that a mental event or a biological event something well they don't see it that way though they see it as actually god out there being you know working in their lives so it by nature their understanding of that event you know that mental event is you know divine it's supernatural right so right. For, it, for them for them it is supernatural but for me it, it is it is not it is not supernatural i think that there is there is a naturalistic way a psychobiological way to to understand that and um i think i think that currently uh we 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 don't fully understand that 
scientifically, but I think that, you know, the new, the new emerging field of neurotheology will, will really help to uh, shine light Shine so, light on so you're saying that we're we, it's actually part of how we evolved that you know the process of salvation it actually fits the bill you know in our in you know in our uh how our brains work right that i think i think our brains have evolved first of all our brains have have evolved imperfectly evolution has not allowed us to to see object of reality for what it is so we have a lot of these holes in our understanding of things, and we often feel very helpless and vulnerable. And the way to make up for that vulnerability and helplessness is to invent a savior, somebody who can save us from ourselves, from from the dangers around us, uh, mm. from the dangers beyond us. Yeah. So uh, in, in a way, like we actually, you're saying that our brain seems to be like, like having a savior having a savior shaped hole in it, in its and uh, how it works yeah well okay. and I, I think i think yes there is a savior shaped hole but i got to be careful because i'm when i say yeah, that, well, i'm not saying it's like it's meant to be that it was intentional it's just how it's and that's just how it seems to be yeah that is how it seems to be it just it just so happens to be that that's how evolution worked it out interesting even though even though I don't think, even though I don't, I don't think evolution has any kind of cognitive role. It of course, have, yeah. It doesn't have intention. Yeah, it it's have just, a plan. Uh, yeah. That's how evolution works, right? Yes, evolution is unguided. So, for just, the second, so, what would you? Okay, so this, so the second theme I think that is an undercurrent to all of our lives is this whole conversation about the nature of mind and consciousness. So, there is this growing idea in various media. And blogs that saying that physicalism or materialism is dead or outdated. Um, and it is my suspicion that people want to replace physicalism or materialism with the idea that that mind or consciousness, instead of matter and energy, or panpsychism, panpsychism, something like that, or idealism, dualism, mm -hmm. idealism. You know, dualism was dead long ago, um, and idealism, I as far as i can see it's it's dead too i mean i know the idealists are gonna they'll, they'll disagree with me on that and that's okay but i i suspect that there are people out there who want to replace the idea uh they want to say that matter and energy is not the basis of all reality uh mind and consciousness is so and this discussion is very very well, i wouldn't say it's dead though for, you know because you just said that you would actually consider the possibility that there's a world out there you know if it is actually if idealism or dualism is dead you would be certain for yourself right that there is no well, world out there well yeah I, I i do question if it really is dead i i i'm wondering if maybe it is making a reemergence or a resurrection after after a few hundred years because there are a lot of people on youtube and blog so it's not dead right like if it's still uh if so well, many people still adhere to it right it's well, not dead. i mean it's it's quite possible that it seems like a lot of people are adhering to it but who are these people exactly are they are they real scientists are they doctors are they professionals mm -hmm. i mean i've found i have found some professionals and doctors on, on youtube uh, arguing against yeah. well um I, I could I could just you know uh, Google a, a, a list of scientists you know physicists who would actually agree that who adhere to some sort of panpsychist or idealist uh, world you know worldview 
right? Well, okay, so maybe you could find a hundred. Maybe you could find a list of a hundred scientists and physicists and professionals who mm -hmm. subscribe to um, some kind of non-materialist, yeah, non-materialist, non-physicalist worldview. Mm -hmm. However, I I have to wonder if maybe the the people who subscribe to the professionals who subscribe to physicalism and materialism what if what if that list is in is in the million you know what i mean so millions yeah, versus hundred just because they're many you know majority doesn't mean they're right though no. i agree i agree um so the reason and the reason why i'm bringing up bringing that up is because if there is a resurrection or reemergence of um anti-physicalism and, and anti-materialism that's that is something worth addressing it's it's not a matter of i'm not trying to use that as a ruler or a measure uh, on deciding whether or not materialism and, and physicalism are true or false. Um, because it very well could be that the minority is right and the majority is wrong. Um, but there, there tends to be, you know, really a, a pull from the majority, you know, like we, we tend to intuitively and instinctually think, you know, what are the odds that the majority of mm. the majority is, is, is right. We, we tend to feel instinctually that, that they are right. Well, so, I, mean, I would say, you know, um, if there are maybe hundreds or maybe even a th like a thousand, at least a thousand physicists who actually, who are, you know, recognized in their field, who actually dive into this in their daily lives, you know, in their long careers, who actually find idealism, even if they're just a minority, then I would say, you know, non-physicalism would actually be a valid worldview, you know, if they see it, see it that way in, in, in an academic level. If there, if there is that number of non-physicalists out there, I'm, I'm interested in, in studying their work. To see Definitely. if they have any evidence. Yeah, I would. The too. reason why the reason why I subscribe to materialism and physicalism is because it, it just seems very commonsensical, and it, it just it feels coherent to me. It seems coherent. It, it helps me to really make sense of the world. If I subscribe to a non-materialist, non-physicalist worldview, I just it's it becomes hard for me to to really stay sane because I have less rules to follow. Less rules. Well, yes, because because there without materialism and physicalism, there there really are no boundaries and rules as to what I can believe and not believe. I mean, why? Well, because I, I feel like I feel like things like dualism and idealism and non-physicalism, those kinds of worldviews essentially state that you know, mm -hmm. mind mind and consciousness are fundamental to all reality. What we think is real really could not be real so well, everything well, we see... like if um so you know what's what would make what would what is what is the definition of real though if if from the start you know my laptop here or my body or my life is substantially made of consciousness stuff right um yeah. that would actually be reality so what would be the difference if it's a naturalist one or a, f a physical one? I would define real as being anything that can be confirmed with five senses. Taste, smell, touch, sight, sound. Because um, I, I don't, 
if if I'm going to talk about what's in the world, I I don't have anything else to to depend on. But but well, that. well, when you say confirm, I would I would I guess I think you would mean like you you know you can make testable predictions, you know make make experiments, right? You can observe that like uh, and validate your hypothesis, right? And uh, and and be at least fairly certain that this is how rea- reality works, right? You know your yeah. empirical data. Right, but um, yes. I I don't think that that even that even so even if it is you know uh, made of consciousness and everything substantial substantially you know that you can still make testable predictions there and it, it would be as real as if it was a physicalist world. Um, well, I I kind of I kind of don't know um, mm-hmm. because. If people, if if dualists and idealists are going to argue that we really don't understand consciousness and how it works, um, and if they and if they agree that we can't really state what it is, then they can't tell me that consciousness and mind is is the underpinning to to all of reality. Um, mm. And you know, I I have found some pretty simple definitions for for consciousness which is basically it just boils down to awareness 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 of self um awareness of what's happening in me uh sentience um uh awareness of internal and external existence um you know i i mean i realize that it remains puzzling and controversial uh being at once the most familiar and most mysterious aspect of our lives um, I'm I'm but... I'm curious though, right? I okay. So if you're a materialist, yeah, okay. then do you and you're not a dualist, right? Right. So what is consciousness exactly? Uh, what is the medium that this awareness? You know, uh, you know, where is it essentially? Uh, what is the vessel? I mean, like, if... I would say I would say the vessel is the brain. The vessel. The vessel. Well, the brain is just an organ, right? It's just a bunch of meat, blood, you know, molecules, you know. Uh, molecules. Yeah. Chemicals. Yeah. Um, sensory events. Um, mm. it, it has awareness. So basically, awareness is just the state of being conscious of something. It is the ability to directly know and perceive, to feel, or to be uh, aware of events. Mm-hmm. Um, Another definition describes it as a state wherein a subject is aware of some information when that information is directly available to bring to bear in the direction of a wide range of behavioral. So, you know, we have we have nerve cells that that, you know, um, facilitate this, that make this happen. You, you really could you really can't have awareness without nerve neurotransmitters, synapses, um, all of those events going on. Um, you know, I mean, so many different chemicals within our brain, brains and nervous systems really, um, really impact and change mm-hmm. how we pay attention, uh, how we how we feel with our self-esteem. You know, we have dopamine, we have dopamine, uh, noradrenaline, norepinephrine, uh, oxytocin. Uh, a lot of these chemicals that 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 really determine whether or not you're going to experience depression and anxiety. So you know, I mean, and since these topics of depression and anxiety often tar- often turn very spiritual, you know, it becomes really relevant to the spiritual discussion to to mention these 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 chemicals. 
Um, and in fact, I, I, I was doing a little bit of reading um, on noradrenaline and its effects on social behavior, intergroup relations and moral decisions. Um, earlier, I, I got this from a 2016 uh, study from uh, the US National Library of Medicine and National Institutes of Health. Um, I, I, took, I took some notes and, uh, you know, cause I, I think this would be a good way to kind of segue into, into my next theme because my next theme is about morality and good versus evil. Um, so noradrenaline, you know, uh, has been, has been reported, um, you know, it impacts our basic emotions, which sway our attitudes directed at other races of people and conclusions about what is morally right and wrong. Uh, your reasoning, working memory, categorization of stimuli, problem solving, self-control, and risk-taking behaviors can be impacted by basic emotions such as anger, fear, and happiness. There's a long history of research behind this going back to the 1980s. Um, so um, neuroadrenaline is, is – uh, nerve cells make it happen. Neuro, neuroadrenaline is a hormone and a neurotransmitter used in response to stress and low blood pressure. Um, in 2016, NCBI reported that noradrenaline could be very important to emotional arousal in relation to higher order fit, uh, psychological processes leading to decision making. Um, so if you've ever heard of the, uh, the uh, somatic, somatic marker hypothesis, uh, it states that somatic, somatic states or bodily changes that are associated with emotions are triggered by your brain's ventromedial prefrontal cortex to influence your later decisions. Uh, if you ever search for the somatic marker hypothesis, you, you will find that experiments were tested while using the Iowa gambling task, uh, during which real-life decision-making is supposed to be simulated on a computer screen using cards that represent rewards and penalties, uh, enticing participants to try to win money. It was found that healthy participants were keen at using the good decks while people with orbitofrontal cortex dysfunction kept choosing the, the bad decks, even when they were aware of their overall um, losses uh, continuing. Uh, healthy participants were shown to have reliable stress reactions to the bad decks that aided them in making right choices. Patients who had amygdala lesions did not have reliable uh, physiological reactions to their losses caused by bad decks. People with ventromedial prefrontal cortex dysfunction were also shown to struggle in making right decisions. So, so understanding decision-making in, in light of the somatic marker hypothesis shows us that somatic states can impact and positively accommodate explicit responses and decisions. Now, saying all of this is, is really, uh, uh, it's in correlation to moral decisions because it's, it's pretty general about decisions. So this wasn't direct testing on, on moral happenings, um, but uh, it, it's interesting to draw the, the, the correlations. You know, if you're gonna, if neuroadrenaline is going to determine how you behave and how you choose while gambling, um, how does that affect your moral behaviors and choices uh, in, in other situations? I mean, so, I mean, you could tie morality in there and, and argue that, you know, people gambling, it's, it's a moral crisis. It's a moral issue for them if, if, they're, if they're financially, 
if they're financially robbing themselves um, and if they're if their addiction to gambling is causing them to be unable to take care of their family, mm-hmm. you know, we could easily incorporate morality in, in there. Um, okay, so uh, when you define morality, um, can you be more specific as to the, I guess, the standard that you're using? You know, like, um, what would the, the, what, you know, it, when, mora- when you say morality, there's a, I guess there's sort of a, a good, right, and the bad, right? Or uh, would you say that too? Good, good versus the bad. Um, those are very yeah. simple terms. Yeah, um, I'm, can, I'm very can, yeah using very lame terms. We can put it simply like that. Um, I kind of don't mind that. But how would you? Uh, so how do you define morality? The differentiation of intentions, decisions, and actions between those that are distinguished as proper or right and those that are improper or wrong. Proper or right and improper or wrong. Interesting. So right, uh, what? What? Wrong. how do you know what's proper or right and improper or wrong? Well, quite often, I, I think we make a lot of those judgments based on intentions and, and uh, other people's intentions as well as our own and their decisions as well as our own and their actions as well as our own. There, I, mm-hmm. There's a lot of interplay between all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that takes place in conversation mm-hmm. with ourselves and with other people. So morality is basically uh, essentially with only you know um, around intentionality, right? If if you didn't intend anything, if there's no intention, then it's amoral, right? There's no morality involved in anything if there's no intention. Well, maybe not. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Uh, that that is something. But that that's I, how you define it, though, right? Like, um, you know, more as you said, morality is the intention. Where it is, the, it is the differentiation of intention, yeah. decisions, and actions mm-hmm. from the right or the wrong or the proper or the improper. So it's a differentiation right. of intentions. So without the intentions, then there is no morality. Well, without intentions, you still have decisions and actions. You could uh, you could arguably say that somebody who you can who, have decisions and actions without intention. Well, let's let's define intentions. So we assume that when somebody employs intention, they had maybe free will in the act. Do you believe um, that people have free will? I think free will is an oversimplistic concept. But let me let me go further with defining intention. So. Uh, intention involves a, a commitment to executing an action in the future. Mm-hmm. So intention involves a lot of planning, premeditation, uh, a cost-benefit analysis, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. um, uh, really thinking about consequences. So when we see that somebody decides to murder another person, we think to ourselves, did he or she not consider the consequences of doing this? Mm-hmm. And it really, it really uh, befuddles us um, mm-hmm. as to how somebody could I murder see. another okay. person. Because if you're a very empathetic person, you really, it's really hard to identify with with a murderer who essentially lost their empathy in the premeditation stages leading up to the mm-hmm. murder, and then and then doing the murder itself. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is yeah. this is why murder this is why the, the psychobiology of murder in general is still very understudied um it, it's still very mysterious which i i understand why people appeal to religion on this it you know um even though i disagree with people on on you know boiling well, interesting. it all down to just, okay so um well, uh, what i'm noticing I, here though matthew is that um you're sort of giving a finding or looking for a scientific 
explanation for why we we actually value people's intentions in our criminal justice system. And and I, I do have to, you know, isn't that a bit a bit of um, sp- uh, special pleading though? Like maybe it's just the case that uh, it's just a brute fact, you know, like or you know that pe- it's just is that that society holds these values. A brute fact. Um, I, I mean, it's it's very factual that people perceive murder to be to be morally wrong. Yeah. Um, but to say to label it as as pure evil that gets complicated because because murders have occurred throughout history for various reasons, and easily reasonable people could find ways to uh you know convincingly justify a murder um or a killing uh you know we we easily do that with war nobody nobody really bats an eyelash at going to war with another tribe or people that they think is is wrong or dangerous Mm -hmm. you know so um, i I think your so your method here you know in finding out why we hold uh, intent intentions valuable in our justicism is that you you sort of reverse engineering it you know in finding reasons biologically psychologically you know why we actually have this have this you know and why we act in this certain way i mean let's face it i i think just about anybody in this world has has the potential to to murder another person and and i don't think i don't think it has anything to do with spirituality there's nothing there's nothing essentially demonic Mm -hmm. or angelic so so in in the end though um if you are right yeah that uh, this is the case that our biology, you know, definitely our psychology definitely led us to valuing intentions in this way. Like, um, do you do you? Uh, what is the cause of this? Uh, we just, I think, the 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 end result of your research will be we just evolved in this way. Yeah, we evolved this way, and it is culture that has mm-hmm. imbued us with with particular social valuations mm-hmm. um, definitely we we yeah. we are conditioned by culture to to judge uh certain moral in, or immoral actions in certain ways um mm-hmm. and I, I think we're often very uh, uh motivated by by uh culture in our culture to seek for mm-hmm. validation so i mean if you just ponder for the fact that if Say, for instance, if you decide to to define or understand murder in a particular way that your people do not agree with, you're going to feel awkward. You're going to feel embarrassed. You're going to feel um, socially devalued. You're going to feel the urge to change your opinion so that you can be in better agreement with your people around you because, number one, you need them to trust you. Number two your neurobiology, the health of your neurobiology heavily depends on social validation from your peers. Um, and just number three, I mean, uh, I don't know if there's a number three. I mean, I could go on, I could go on thinking about a bunch of other reasons, but mm-hmm. I think you get my point that, that, you know, um, the sensitivity of the topic of murder, it's really important for us to, to view it in, in the right way so mm-hmm. that so that we can so that we can better deal with it better deal with the issue as a society and um i and i and i think i think viewing it from a religious standpoint that that basically just tries to label murder or any kind of moral or immoral action or like 
things cannot just be bo- boiled down to uh, uh, pure evil or pure good. It's things are things are very gray. Um, well, how about this, right? Like, um, let's say I would, you know, there there's a man that murdered millions of babies, you know, cold blooded. Okay. Would you say that there it, that's a gray area? No, it's it's, it's not, pure evil, it's not a gray right? Area. But uh, I it's guess not a gray that, area. Mm-hmm. What's that? Would you would you say it's ab- absolutely evil that or maybe uh that you would uh or would you also may, might consider that there might have been a, a reason that the man that actually that or why a man did that and that would validate his actions? Well, first of all, that that whole event is catastrophic and emotionally jarring. Mm-hmm. It's emo- it's emotionally disgusting, mm-hmm. regardless of what his intentions were. But how I'm go- how how I would judge him and say how he should be punished, I would want to investigate. Mm-hmm. Um, I would want to investigate why he did it. Did somebody force him to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, was you know like what what is what was the case? Mm-hmm. So that- what what would happen here though is like um, like. Um, if he was forced to do it, right, then there would be a greater evil and a lesser evil or maybe our actual and actual good in a dead situation, right? Like he could have, you know, he could have not done it himself, you know, or in the preferred the consequences, right? Um, well, I mean, looking into why he did it, if he was, if he was forced to do it, Mm-hmm. I would question who or what forced him to do it. Mm-hmm. And once we identify that, it would be better to it would be better to nail down that cause and make sure that that cause never happens again. I see. So I mean, you would just address the issue without really judging whether or not that action was fully evil or, or I guess wrong or improper. Well, then- well, then I would try to judge him and ask, was there something else that he could have done to avoid killing mm. the babies? Mm. And, and why didn't he choose the better option? You mm. know, where's what is the most reasonable explanation? Did he have some kind of disruption in mm. his brain? So um, uh, you, would, you would sort of just, you know, uh, if that uh, catastrophic did, uh, event did occur, you would so- simply postpone judgment. Right. And um, let's not, you know, let's stop and take a look, you know, if this act, act is actually evil or not. Right. Or if this man's intention is evil or not. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, no matter no matter how we judge him, he's going to go to jail. Of course. Considering yeah. consider, considering how our current mm-hmm. society operates and how they how they judge murderers. If he is mm-hmm. proven to be guilty of, of murder, murdering, murdering babies, um, He's going to be going mm-hmm. to jail. So um, I guess like judging whether or not that man's actions are evil or actual, or, you know, or it, you have, if you are going to postpone judgment on it, it, like your judgment is irrelevant as long as society will have the, the upper hand and actually achieve its societal justice, right? Well, my, my judgment in deciding what should happen to him would be irrelevant because I, I'm not I'm mm-hmm. not a professional judge. I, I'm I'm not in involved with legal law and how to and how to I'm not involved with how we should punish people, but I, I you know 
it's it's in, this is a really interesting topic you know mm-hmm. and, and uh it's it's something these moral issues are things that i would like to spend the rest of my life yeah really philosophically and psychologically studying and thinking about because um i think that even stuff like this even the most egregious disgusting mm-hmm. acts mm-hmm imaginable we we cannot boil them down to just pure evil because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that that confuses the issue if we just start throwing the pure evil label onto things we we never we never end up figuring out Mm -hmm. the true causes why why people do the things the way that they do how do they do them Mm -hmm. and then Uh, once we can understand understand the neurobiology the the biology and 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 the psychology of these of these things we can better we can better develop ways to prevent them from happening like you know Mm -hmm. um and uh, so uh, yeah yeah uh, i i see your point there yeah like um you know do we just can't uh you know do it out of you know out of just irrational or irrational reasons right it is emotionally uh disgusting and gross and no one that should have never that should never happen that those cases right but so well, i uh, I, I, def- I definitely agree that that the killing of babies the murdering mm. of babies that that should never happen yeah, uh, mm. but in, in terms of like labeling it as pure evil, you know, you wouldn't go that far to, you know. Right? Well, it's, it's hard to label it a, a, as pure evil because there's a cause and effect in, in everything. So uh, you know, would I mean, there be a scenario where that, that where that man's action would be justified? Like, would there be an actual scenario if you know in in terms of possibilities let's say that you know uh, you know uh the trolley problem right like um you know if you, I was you just could, about to say yeah you know like uh, you you could choose to kill one man for the sake of five lives right but so the you know these certain scenarios there is actually no good alternatives yeah but 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 um so it but would you say then that the you know like killing a man would be justified uh, to save five people, right? <laughs> well, I mean, <sighs> yeah. The, so I, I, I would say, like, I would go as far as to say, you know, if from my perspective, that um, both actions are wrong, right? They're they're immoral, and they they that uh, killing someone or like sacrificing someone's lives. For the sake of others, you know, and uh, even because even, you know, it's it is just wrong. Like it's immoral to do that. But um, we we I would have. Say, I would say it would be immoral to ever put a, a mm-hmm. person in that situation to begin with, wherein they have to decide between one life versus five lives. Exactly, but um, you know, it, there. But if you put someone in that position, right? Of course, that would be an immoral action. But they would have to have the choice, you know, to make two immoral choices, but with different outcomes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Matthew, you know, it's been a long conversation with you, man. It's uh, I, I will almost an hour. And one last question, man. Like, um, uh, I, I, I want to get a, a clearer picture of what you, of your secular humanism, right? Can you uh, dive into that, and then uh, we can sort of wrap the show up. And this, and, uh, I've loved this, man. Like, uh, it's okay. a breath of fresh air. 
Yeah, I, I really hope uh, I answered your questions well. I was kind of nervous with that last one talking about murder because um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a mysterious thing. Uh, I, I struggle with it, uh, on, you know, philosophically on, on a regular basis, understanding, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just know that I, I never want to kill or hurt anybody. Um, of course, never. yeah, um, yeah. So... So my, my, my version of secular humanism, my version of secular, secular humanism is about um, being able to, to have the freedom to reason and moralize independently from dogmas from religion, um, to be able to envision a, a scientific future that allows for things that that really um push the boundaries um so that we can improve humanity's lot in life or humanity's condition so that we can so that we can minimize um disgusting egregious things like murder and and the killing of babies and thievery and and whatever whatever disgusting egregious thing you, you can think of my hope and uh, uh, my my hope and my desire is to see that that science can really um, shine the light on in, in the darkness of of these things. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I wish I wish to see. I, I I advocate for the kind of secular humanism that that says you know we we shouldn't be we shouldn't keep ourselves enshrouded in, in ignorance and and I and I feel like there are certain things from religion that we could really get rid of that would allow us to, to, you know, minimize the ignorance. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we, I don't know if we can get rid of religion completely because I do think that there are a lot of people out there who heavily depend on it. They need it. They, they really can't live without it. Um, and you can't, you can't push them to think otherwise. And I don't like trying to convert anybody who doesn't want to be converted. So I, I'm trying to convert the people who, who are curious, who are looking for something to replace the religion that is oppressing them and causing them to do questionable things or think questionable things or believe mm-hmm. questionable things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my, my kind of secular humanism is, is very, I try to be very humane and I, I'm all about trying to maximize people's happiness and well-being. So what kind of philosophy can I promote that will maximize people's happiness and well-being? What can we do better to, to, to avoid murder and mayhem and, uh, you know, violence and vandalism and, and, and malfeasance and, and, and corruption? How, what can we do to really minimize these things? Mm-hmm. I see. And uh, yeah, I actually had a guest yesterday and he had uh, a YouTube channel about and who critic that criticizes cults specifically because uh, the, you know, cults, you know, religious cults, you know, political or or any well, or any sort of cultish uh, groups, they have these uh, these symptoms as well of, you know, of oppressing individuals, you know, taking advantage of their ignorance. Right. And uh, I, I really believe that if we spread, you know, critical thinking, you know, and uh, and providing the 
people who are curious enough to to question their own beliefs, right, and give them the ammunition enough to actually help themselves. And I and I, I really uh, lo- uh, love people who who uh, take time of your of their day to promote this, right? Uh, critical thinking. You know, uh, a good healthy skepticism, and uh, the common caveat, guys. If you're listening, check out Matthew has uh, a lot of articles there that would definitely you definitely find interesting, right? And uh, Matthew, thank you so much for for uh, being on the show, man. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely, thank you very much, Elmo. Again, my name is Matthew Sabatine of the Common Caveat. Please check me out, and uh, it was a pleasure being with you, Elmo. <laughs> So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.